This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the Impact Theory Podcast, your source of empowering ideas and actionable techniques from the world's highest achievers. Join host Tom Bilyeu, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of the billion-dollar brand Quest Nutrition, on a journey to unlock your potential and realize your vision of success. Welcome to Impact Theory. Everybody, welcome to Impact Theory. You are here, my friends, because you believe that human potential is nearly limitless, but you know that having potential is not the same as actually doing something with it. So our goal with this show and company is to introduce you to the people and ideas that will help you actually execute on your dreams. All right. Today's guest is a reformed screenwriter who traded in his tenure at Luminary Studios such as Disney and Fox to pursue his passion for fact-finding, which he turned into one of the most popular blogs on the internet. Over the past eight years, his humorous and wildly informative articles have garnered him massive attention and helped him amass an army of dedicated followers numbering over 300,000 strong. And I am not the least bit surprised. His content is aimed at providing readers with science-based answers and expert insights into how to be, in his words, awesome at life. And he certainly delivers. I was so captivated by his debut book, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, the surprising science behind why everything you know about success is mostly wrong, that we had him scheduled on the show before I'd even finished reading it. His work challenges many of the long-held platitudes about what makes people successful and reveals the real, usable secrets to success. They're often surprising, at times a little unnerving if I'm completely honest, but always useful. And his insatiable curiosity and wondrous ability to succinctly summarize often hard-to-digest data has made him one of the most sought-after speaker educators working today. He's been invited to speak at such prestigious institutions as West Point, Yale, and MIT, and his writing has been featured everywhere from the New York Times to the Wall Street Journal, and prestigious publications such as Time Magazine and Business Insider regularly syndicate his content. He is quite literally redefining the rules of success. So please, my friends, help me in welcoming the best-selling author whose book was selected as the Financial Times Business Book of the Month, the creator of Bakadesuyo.com, which in Japanese ironically translates both as I am Barker and I am an idiot. The insightful, funny, and decidedly not idiotic, Eric Barker. What's up, man? Thank you so much for being on the show. It's great to be here. Good to have you. And I have to say, I love that after learning what... Uh, and how do you pronounce it, by the way? That oh, was my best... Baca Desio. Okay, so once you learned that that translates into I am Barker and I am an idiot, that you still made it your URL... 
Uh, first day of Japanese class, I found out, yeah, my last name means uh, idiot in Japanese. So, yeah, Watashi wabaka desu means I am Barker. Watashi wabaka desu means I am an idiot. <laughs> I've never had a Japanese person forget my name. Uh, in fact, they seem to love saying it. That is hilarious. <laughs> What made you take Japanese in the first place, which doesn't sound easy? I wanted to do something different. You know, I was like, I mean, I wanted to try something that was. You know, really out there and, and, you know, just so different having three character systems and, you know, just something that existed like in parallel rather than a, you know, a Latin based romance language and just really see, you know, what I could learn there. It was, it was a lot of fun, but it wasn't easy. Was this in high school or college? This was college. Okay. And, um, And yeah, it was, it was challenging, but it was really interesting because from a language, you also, you know, you also learn a little bit about the culture and you learn, you know, so much. It's, it's really, it's really fun. I'm glad I chose it, even though, even though it、uh, made studying a little harder.、Uh, yeah, I can imagine.、Yeah. I actually really like how well that sort of personality trait of you of not looking for the easy path, of always being willing to sort of look、um, underneath. The hood, and then embrace、yeah. what you find, whether it's what your last name means. <laughs> Or, one of the most interesting things that was in your book、yeah. is the concept that feeling powerless at work can actually kill you, I think is the exact quote from your book. Yeah. Tell us about that.、Uh, there's plenty of research that shows that you know, stress, you know, I mean, stress in small amounts you know, can be a performance enhancer. You know, you, you, you know, you know, when you're feeling groggy, when you're feeling tired, you know, you're not at 100%. A little bit of stress is good. But a lot of stress, especially a lot of stress over a long period of time, we all know, you know this isn't good. And when you feel powerless at work, when you feel like you don't have autonomy, when you feel like nobody's listening to you, you don't feel respected, you know, stress levels, your cortisol levels go up. And over a period of time, you know, not in a day or a week, but over a period of years, feeling like you know, what you do doesn't make a difference and feeling like you're not respected. Having stress levels elevated like that, you know, what you see is over time, years, decades,、uh, people are much more likely to have coronary incidents. It's so interesting. It was one of the things in the book that, as you're detailing it, I'm like, that actually makes sense, but having such a fine point put on it, I found really, really surprising. So, I mean, you've been doing this blog for eight years. So, it started as a blog, Barking Up the Wrong Tree,、yeah. um, evolves into the book that it now is.、Yeah. In all of that research,、yeah. which, by the way, for anybody discovering him for the first time right now, you're going to love. How thoroughly he researches all this stuff. And the fact that the book is about how the things you've been taught about success are mostly wrong, I think really comes from the fact that you encounter these platitudes.、Yeah. And as you dig deeper, realize that they just don't hold up to the scrutiny of the data.、Yeah. What have you found most surprising in the data? I mean, one of the things that was most surprising to me was Adam Grant's research in terms of nice guys finish last.、Mm-hmm. You know,、uh, Adam teaches at Wharton, and Adam's a very nice guy himself. And he、uh, split it up into givers, matchers, and takers as kind of the three groups he made. Givers are people who give altruistically, love helping people. Matchers are people who are strongly believe in fairness, so they try to keep an even balance of give and take. And takers are people who want to get as much as possible and give as little as possible.、Right. So Adam looked at a bunch of careers, and then he looked at a variety of success metrics. And the initial results. Uh, didn't make a nice guy like Adam feel very good because at the initial results showed a disproportionate number of nice guys showing up at the bottom of success metrics across a number of fields. This was a little depressing. But when he did the thorough analysis, what he found out, the results were actually bimodal, was basically a disproportionate number of nice guys were at the bottom, a disproportionate number of nice guys were at the top. 
And that might sound initially confusing, but really I think it's something we can all relate to because we all know a martyr who you know, gets taken advantage of, gets walked on, does too much for others, doesn't do enough for themselves, and gets exploited. But we also know people who are really awesome, really great, go out of their way to help others. Everybody feels indebted to them. Everybody loves them and everybody is so happy to go out of their way to support that person and to do whatever they can. And so it's not an issue of you know, nice being bad or nice being weak. It's just an issue of how you ha handle that balance of wanting to give to others and doing it while not being a doormat, while not getting exploited. One of the things that you detailed along those lines is the computer programs, the algorithms that they had compete. Yeah. Um, talk to us about TFT, what that is. I found this really interesting. It was something yeah. that resonated with me a lot. This was the research by Robert Axelrod that uh, basically they're doing the prisoner's dilemma, which is a, a standard, a standard thing where you know, are you going to agree or are you going to are you going to work with the other person? Are you going to defect to try and cheat them? And so they, he reached out to a lot of different uh, experts in, in math and sociology and wherever to come up with an algorithm. To so let's go into a little more okay. detail about the, mm -hmm. the process. So yeah. it's something like, hey, uh, you're, you're, you're being interrogated, yeah. and there's two of you that are yeah. in on the crime. Yeah. And if you say nothing, you yeah. get one year? Uh, so basically, if you... If, so basically, you, you, you both commit a bank robbery, you both get arrested, you're being interrogated in separate rooms. If you both you know, say nothing, then you both get like one year in prison. Mm. If, uh, if, you, if, you de if you defect, if you basically say, he did it, he did it, then you, know, you, you, you do better, he does worse. Right. Uh, and if you, you know, if you both turn the other guy in, then you, you both do pretty bad. So... If you could coordinate with the other person, but you can't, but if you could coordinate, you could both keep your mouth shut. Right. So the question there becomes, you know, who, what's the optimal way, mathematically speaking, what is right. the optimal way to, to negotiate the prisoner's dilemma? So you, they had a, different, a bunch of different algorithms that would try different things. So you had some that were like always nice. They, 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 they always cooperated, you know, they, they never betrayed the other person, no matter what. Mm because it's multiple rounds. And then you had ones that always tried to screw the other guy, no matter what. And then you had sneakier ones that would like see, hey, on this round, can I, can I, can I cheat a little bit and then backpedal? How much can I get away with? And, you and are those meant to replicate the giver's matches and takers? Well, well there, are two, there, there, are two, there were two different... Re the Axelrod did his research like in the 80s. Okay. So this was around the time of the Cold War because they were trying to figure out, you know, was there some way that you know, the U.S. and Russia could, could cooperate? Right. So what was the optimal way? And what they, what they basically found was comically, you know, there are all these complex algorithms. And this, the one that by far did the best was something we all learn when we're kids. You know, it, you know I mean, it was tit for tat. Basically, it was, okay, we go one round. I'm going to start off cooperating. If you cooperate, next round, I'll cooperate. If you defect, next round, I defect. And I will have no memory. So all I'm looking at is the last round. If you, if you, if you defect, fine, then I'll defect. But if you cooperate, then I'll join you again. Just tit for tat. I'm going to do whatever. I'm going to start out cooperating, and then I'm going to do whatever you did on the last round. And tit for tat destroyed everybody. Because what was interesting was... Initially, tit for tat would would lose. The bad guys would get the high ground very quickly because they were immediately right. attacking. But over time, you know, tit for tat had some great things going for it in the sense that first, it always initially cooperated, so it showed goodwill. 
So past that, it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't a doormat. You know, if you defected, it would defect right back. So it had that balance of, hey, I'm gonna show goodwill, you know, but I'm not gonna take any crap. And, that can, and the really thing I think we can really take away from this that's valuable is it also educated the other person in how to play, mm. as opposed to a punishing. There were, there, were other, there were other algorithms that would start off cooperating, and the minute, and we all know people like this, start off cooperating, and the minute you defected, that's it. I'm never gonna trust you again. Defect, 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 right. defect, defect. I don't care what you do. I don't trust you now. And, you know, so this was a kind of an educational process. So if you think, it, it makes sense. It maps on to longer-term negotiations, where if you know you're going to have to deal with somebody over a longer period of time, this educational process where, you know, okay, this, up, 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 you're going a little too far. Okay, let's, we're teaching each other how to talk to one another. Right. So if you cooperate, up, oh, you defected. Okay, I'm going to defect back. You're going to cooperate now? Okay, I'm going to cooperate now. There was an ongoing conversation. So in the short term, the bad guys took the high ground. But in the long term, very often, whenever tit for tat would meet another good uh, program, they, the gains were exponential. When I met a bad program, it wasn't going to take any crap, so the losses were small. And the programs that were in the middle, it managed to kind of teach them, you know, hey, if you're going to screw me over, I'm going right. to screw you back. But if you're good, I'll be good. And they realized being good was in their best interest. One of the funniest parts of your book is where you go into like this long, long, like page after page <laughs> after page, diatribe of like all the ways that being nice can be punished and you finally end it by saying, I would keep going, but yeah. my publisher won't let me release this with uh, antidepressants. Yeah. Like, talk to us about that early lead that jerks can get and, mm -hmm. and how does that play out like in, in a concrete sort of business environment? I mean, you know, very often, uh, you know, bad traits, there's what you see consistently in terms of bad behavior and good behavior. Um, there's a lot of research in terms of that puts it, frames it in terms of time. So sh a short-term strategy versus a long-term strategy. It's actually a really good point. And, you know, if you think about it, you know, in general, you know, what's the reputation of used car salesmen? Not very good. Why? Uh, they're probably never going to see you again. Very short-term. Mm. So if we map that onto the prisoner's dilemma... If there's only one or two rounds, if I can get the high ground, I can just win. Right. You're not going to get a chance to retaliate. Versus, you know, what's the general reputation of moms? Mom's going to be with you throughout the, the rest of your life. Yeah. So, you know, mom's going to take care of, mom's going to be there. It's a longer term, you know, type of strategy. So when you look at these kind of things, that's where all of a sudden the bad and good behavior starts to make a little bit more sense. Where, you know, initially... Uh, you look at narcissists. Narcissists do better in job interviews. They do better on first dates. Uh, and initially, uh, these things look really good. But by the same token, if you go a few weeks into after starting a job, narcissists are generally regarded as untrustworthy. After a few months of a relationship, relationship satisfaction of the other partner tanks. You know, it's this shorter term strategy, grab all I can. So one of the strategies that people can use so for a takeaway from this is that if you find yourself in an, you're involved or in an encounter, a deal or whatever with somebody who you're not so sure if you can trust them, they call it lengthening the shadow of the future. If I build more steps into the contract, if I stretch this out, if they know there's going to be a chance for retaliation, there's going to be a chance for renegotiation, then people behave better because they know they have to. You know, uh, how, how do people behave? If you, if you meet somebody off the street, that's one thing. If you're introduced to someone by a mutual friend, you're probably going to be a little bit nicer. You don't want your friend to get upset with you. Now, so, you know, very often, 
uh, in these kind of one-off type encounters, bad behavior can pay off. It's sad. But when it's stretched out, very often there's a chance for retaliation. And more importantly, we develop a reputation. People talk. There's gossip. And if you develop a reputation where people say you can trust this person over time, that benefits us. And if somebody says, yeah, they seem really nice, they're a fast talker, but don't trust them, that comes back to haunt them. You talk really well in the book about how one of the most dangerous places for a giver is to be in an organization full of takers. Because there's no other givers there to protect you and sort of create a buffer. what advice would you give if you had a friend who was a giver in the midst of a bunch of takers and they can't leave for whatever reason, financially they're strapped, they just right now they can't afford to leave the job. Yeah. Would you advise them to adopt taker strategies or would you give I've, them other advice? I mean, if they, if they can't leave, then what you look, what you get from Robert Axelrod's research was that, because they tried it where they had like multiple, multiple, multiple games going on, circle the wagons is what I would say, is find the few givers or few matchers that are there and affiliate tightly with them and work through them and with them. Because obviously being surrounded by takers, especially when when your natural instinct is to be a giver, Mm. is really dangerous. Number one, you can get exploited. Number two, uh, over time, you can become a taker yourself. Uh, Bob Sutton, who's a professor at Stanford, gave some great advice where he said, whenever you interview at a company, Look around at the people at that company because you're going to become like them. They're not going to become like you. I love that. We, we always talk about peer pressure in relation to teenagers. Peer pressure affects us our entire lives. We are always influenced by our context and by the people around us. The, most, the biggest danger there is we don't realize it. Mm. We are always influenced. So the thing that givers need to keep in mind is that if they find other givers, boom, they're helping each other, their favors, and they're both kind of on the lookout for being exploited. But matchers can also be valuable as well. Because matchers, it's not merely that they want to keep an, an, a, a balance of give and take. Matchers typically have a strong belief in justice. Mm. So matchers are very happy to punish takers and to reward givers. So, uh, so with other givers, givers can do very well. Mm. They can produce great things at work. And if, there's, and if givers manage to surround themselves with matchers, then they, they end up with, with bodyguards. Right. So it's basically seek out those people and, and circle the wagons as best you can. Do you think that applies in like interpersonal relationships outside of work? Like uh, when you're thinking about looking for a spouse, like is that something to take into consideration? I, I think it's something to take into consideration in every area of life. You know, we, we all have, I mean, at work, obviously it's very clear because of the, the amount of transactional uh, relationships that go on. But in your personal life, we all have friends who, who some of them do so much for you that you almost feel guilty. Right. Uh, other ones uh, seem to all only come around when they're asking you for favors. And some of them, hey, they help you out, you help them out. You know, so it really behooves us to always be thinking to some degree, okay, givers, matchers, takers, who can I trust and when? You know, who's there in the good times? Who's there in the bad times? I think it's, it's always valuable. You talked about context a second ago. I want to go back to that. So you've got this notion of intensifiers, things that you were talking about genes and like genes aren't necessarily good and not necessarily bad, but given context, they can really play out differently. How should people, because I get asked a lot, you know, about, okay, do I double down on my strengths? Do I puff up a weakness? Like, what do I do? And the notion of intensifiers really caught my eye because it was well, maybe that's the fundamentally wrong question. Maybe you should be asking, given the way that I am, what context should I be seeking? 
I totally agree. I think that's, that's definitely the way to go. Uh, Gotham Akunda, who's a professor at Harvard Business School, teaches leadership, and um, he came up with this notion of intensifiers, of the attitudes where we say a lot of personality traits or qualities are just bad. And that really doesn't hold up to scrutiny. You know, if you think about it, um, in interpersonal relationships, stubbornness is <laughs> rarely considered a good quality. If it's a bad thing, you should get rid of your stubbornness. However, we're also very quick to say, entrepreneurs, you gotta be gritty. Right. Stick by your guns. Don't, don't listen to the haters. Sounds a lot like stubbornness to me. Right. So in context is where it really becomes critical. So yes, in your interpersonal relationship, stubbornness, not so good. But if you're an entrepreneur or if you're doing anything that's really difficult, stubbornness can pay off. So as opposed to you know, be smart, which we would say is a universally good trait, intensifiers are qualities which on average, at the mean, are usually considered negative, but in the right context, can be considered very positive. Being, being overly aggressive uh, you know, might be considered a negative in general. Well, if you're hiring a litigator, you might want somebody who's overly aggressive because that might be. So again, in this context. So a big part of it is realizing, like you're saying, who you are and then aligning your context so that your context rewards both your signature strengths, mm. the research done by Martin Seligman at University of Pennsylvania, what are you uniquely good at, but also your intensifiers where here's my negative qualities, here's what I get criticized for, but here stubbornness is an advantage. Here being overly aggressive is, is a benefit. So I'm gonna line up my signature strengths, my intensifiers with my environment so I'm rewarded for those rather than punished because it's so hard to bring up your weaknesses. You see much greater gains by trying to double down on your strengths. And the first key is knowing what your strengths are, knowing yourself, knowing, admitting your weaknesses, knowing what your intensifiers can be. And then when you align that with the proper context, I call it picking the right pond, um, you know, you see that, boom, everything, your good traits and your bad traits can potentially benefit you. One of the examples that you give in the book of something like, um uh, if you want to be successful in business, uh, pick a drug addict or something like that? <laughs> Was basically, um, we, the thing is with narcissists, narcissists often rise to leadership positions. And so that, that's where we get a lot of the advice in terms of, you know, be uber confident, you know, be dominant, be everything. Because narcissists usually rise to leadership positions. However, they don't necessarily succeed in leadership positions. There's getting the job versus being able to do the job. Right. And Narcissists typically, you know, rise or fall in terms of their performance in terms of the opportunity for glory. So that's interesting. And and what's dangerous there is, obviously, if a company's doing well, hey, lots of money, lots of rewards, lots of things. So when companies are at their worst, <laughs> is when you need people to pick up their performance, right. and it's when narcissists are least likely to be engaged. Stock values dropping. I'm not going to get rewarded here. They do less. On the other hand, and and I'm. To some degree, I was, I was being funny. But uh, uh, what was it? Uh, one researcher at Johns Hopkins was saying that that narcissist is not the personality type you know, that you would want for a leader. The obsessiveness of a junkie, the focus of a junkie, and basically he was referring to neuroscience research right. in terms of someone who is just obsessed. And what do we see when we, when we every profile you read of Silicon Valley billionaires is just always, you know, obsessed, you know, only sleeps four hours a night, only thinks about this, works, you know, reducing their workload to 80 hours a week, you know. That obsessiveness versus just, I want to look cool, 
is, you know, so the, the junkie attitude uh, is a better perspective than the narcissist desire for glory when you're looking for a leader who's going to perform. What drives you? You work an insane amount of hours. Like you said when you were doing the book that you were working four days a week on the book and then three days a week on the blog. And I yeah. thought, oh God, like the amount of words you have to write. You've written, what, 5,000 articles yeah. or something? At yeah, this yeah. It's insanity. Yeah. It's, what, what's the thing that pushes you? I mean, I, I'm excited by I'm excited by what I what I do. I mean, I really enjoy I really enjoy reading. I really enjoy learning. Um, I I'm always like your shirt. I'm always questioning everything. So I'm I'm always I mean I'm really really curious. And so I'll be checking these things. And then you know very often you know I have to read five books to find the one book that's really interesting. I read five studies to find the one study. But then you know I I'll call the authors or I'll call the researchers and you know I get to talk to the smartest people about like really cool stuff. To me, that's just, you know, intoxicating, mm. you know? So for me, it's, it's not, I guess it's just an issue of perspective where, you know, work's not work if you enjoy it. So to me, it's like, what's, what's that next thing? What's that next insight? And just being able to see how, when I apply things to my life and it makes a difference. And then to know that I can share it with, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, you know, is, it feels good. So there's kind of the, just this, this reinforcing cycle. So for me, it's just fun. Walk me through your career. because So you go into film, working for some of the biggest companies on the planet. Yeah. Um, but you've reinvented yourself several times. What was that? Like, take us inside sort of where your mind was, mm -hmm. what you were feeling, and how you had the courage to, like, totally reinvent yourself multiple times. I mean, it was... I was always somebody who was uh, focused on like big ideas and and asking questions, and so my undergrad was in philosophy, uh, oddly enough. But uh, then I did an internship, and you know, in Hollywood, was really excited. I, I came out, and you know, I, I got really lucky really fast. Uh, you know, I came out one year. Next year, I got an agent. Next year, I sold a script. Next year, I had two movies made, and then wow. I got some great great. I really tried to find you on IMDb. <laughs> like, are you hiding? <laughs> There's. <laughs> I, you, you can see some, some of the movies I've, I've had, I've had produced and some of the projects I've worked on, but I, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe I'm not so proud anymore of what I was writing when I was 22, 23, but, um, but I did for a while, but I, you know, it's like Hollywood, the writer doesn't have much control. Mm. And, you know, I just found that that was not fun to be on this roller coaster. Right. And I started asking some big questions of my, myself. And you know, when I, I, got a, I got a master's degree at UCLA in film, but that really just, I'm really asking a lot of questions. And then I stepped back and then I went, oddly enough, and I, I went and I got an MBA. And, uh, and I didn't fit in there at all, some Mr. Creative Screenwriter started, guy. started um, doing marketing for video games and stuff? Yeah, and I worked, uh, worked on the Bioshock franchise, and I worked for a couple different companies. Wow. And, and it, but it was, it was after I got the MBA, and I still felt like, you know, what am, what am I doing? I don't have the answers here, uh, that I started the blog. Because I, I didn't want to take a job I didn't enjoy. I was unemployed for nine months. So I, I was playing around on the internet. It was just something I wanted to do, you know. And then I started doing interviews because I wanted to talk to to experts. And initially, it was just academic research. Then I started looking at the, the you know books the researchers mm -hmm. had done. And then I decided to, to even take a step further than that because you know academic research and science is is great, but they haven't covered everything. So I started looking at experts in particular fields because everything has not been covered, you know, in social science research. So. Um, 
I started drawing on some some friends of mine. And uh, my one friend, Chris Voss, is a former lead international hostage negotiator for the FBI. Okay, well, here's a guy who knows about negotiation. Mm. Might not be based on formal research, but people live or die based on whether he's good at his job. Good enough for me. (laughs) So I call up Chris. How do do we negotiate? Uh, My friend James Waters, uh, Navy SEAL platoon commander. Okay, well, let's find out about grit. Because if you can do what you had to do to get where you got... I want to know what fact, did that. This was a really interesting part of the book. Talk about, like, they were surprised yeah. by what they found. So we're post-9-11. They're yeah. really trying to get people in. Yeah. They realize we either have to lower our standards or find a way to get more people to pass. Lowering yeah. our standards sounds like a bad idea. Yeah. So what was it that they did? I found this really interesting. Uh, basically, the, the Navy had you know, set up uh, this incredible BUDS, you know, basic underwater demolition training, was basically set up you know, to vet people, mm-hmm. to see who are the toughest of the tough, who, who are the people who will not give up, and those were the people who would, who would become Navy SEALs. But the military hadn't done an excellent job of figuring out what those qualities actually were. They could vet for them. You know, can this guy stay up during hell week? Can this guy, you know, make the, make the runs, do the swims, put up with, you know, all the, the hazing and abuse? Yeah, but what were the qualities that actually allowed to, them to get through? And the Navy did research. And what was, you know, amazing was uh, was just a handful, a handful of things. And the, the critical one I talk about in the book was, uh, was self-talk, optimistic self-talk. Was just we all have that voice in our head. Which and they started training for this, right? Absolutely. They they basically they they took the results of the study, you know. So it's like self talk, goal setting, and they they basically started teaching students there because you don't want to lower the standards, and you also you don't want to give the answers to the test. But if you can mold these guys to incorporate these elements, mm. then then great. So they started teaching them, and they improved. Uh, I think uh, almost like eight, eight to ten percent uh, passing rate improved once you started teaching recruits how to incorporate, you know, optimistic self-talk and these other these other habits. Because when we talk about grit and we talk about persistence for long-term goals, uh, one of the things that's been most proven is an optimistic mindset. Is you look at uh, research by Angela Duckworth by Martin Seligman at University of Pennsylvania is uh, that having that optimistic mindset. Because when you believe, hey, if I show up tomorrow, it's gonna work out, then you show up. It makes sense. And if you firmly believe, I'm gonna go there tomorrow and it's gonna be a waste of my time and I'm gonna feel, what do you do? It feels futile. And over long-term goals, if you feel like it's gonna happen, now that's not gonna warp reality necessarily. (laughs) What you do might, but, but if you don't show up, if you feel like there's no point to it, you're not going to do it. Right. And, you know, it, it, it comes down to that belief that positive things, you know, are po- positive things are they're 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 personal. I was responsible. You know, they're pervasive. Hey, my, across a range of areas, I, I can do this. And it's persistent. If I do this, it's, it's going to work out. And people who are pessimistic believe the reverse. And so things start to feel futile. When things start to feel futile, why continue? doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. And what Seligman's research also showed is that if that attitude can, uh, continues long enough or hard enough, that's how you actually end up with clinical depression. Because when life feels futile, mm. when it does not feel like continuing anything is going to pay off, then you start to shrug your shoulders and say, what am I doing? So optimism is strongly correlated with happiness, and pessimism is strongly correlated with not only quitting, but also with depression. Yeah, it was this point in the book, and I, I, I remember, so I hadn't found your blog yet, unfortunately yeah. for yeah. me, 
And I'm reading the book, which was Audible just recommended it. And I'm, oh, look, barking up the wrong tree. Oh, I, what I know about success is wrong. Like I had to read your book, right? Because I'm, I'm all about like find the evidence that, yeah. that pushes you forward rather than just confirm. So that was way too enticing for me not to read it. Then I get to that part in the book. I'm like, who is this guy? Like this stuff is amazing. The notion of optimism being teachable, first of all, that it had such a huge impact on the number of people going through. And then you took it somewhere, which is like my personal fetish, Mm -hmm. especially as a screenwriter. I was like, who has left the field? Mm -hmm. And I'm sort of going the other way. I started in business now going back to screenwriting and saying the whole notion around narrative and that what, in fact, what is it about narrative that they found was so impactful? Stories are basically the operating system of the human brain. You know, if you look across the board, across a bunch of areas of, of research, it's quite fascinating. Um, uh, John Gottman, who's done leading expert in terms of uh, re- you know, relationships, marriages, most indicating thing in terms of whether a couple will get uh, divorced or not is how they tell their story, is merely saying, oh, so tell me the story of your relationship. How did you two meet? And if it's, oh my God, it was so wonderful, it was this and great, and then we had challenges, but we overcame them, we got to know each other better, we grew together, versus... You know, it's like, oh, we met up, we had, you know, we've had some problems. But, I mean, <laughs> you know, just hearing that story is a huge indicator in terms of the success of children. Um, if, a ch- if a child knows its family history, it's a huge impact on how successful that kid is in school, how well adjusted. An example of that. Like, when you say knows their family story, what do you mean? Again, that issue of, okay, your, your great-grandfather, uh, you know, immigrated here from this. And We've if they tell a story that's sort of positive and empowering. And they're a part of something. They're a part of something. It gives reason. It gives meaning. Mm. And what you see across the board with that, with, uh, you know, when you look at what therapists do very often is, uh, is fixing people's stories. I'm a loser, I've always been a loser, this didn't work out, that didn't work out, I can't. Versus, you can take the same events and say, oh, this didn't work out, but that's the day I learned a great lesson, which, same events, Mm. but you're telling them in a different way. So very often, it's not about the specifics of what happened. We've all had successes, we've all had failures, but which ones do we choose to define ourselves by? It's that story in our head that keeps us going, and so, it's deeply important for meaning, but also deeply important in terms of you know, grit, resilience, persistence. Because, again, that story you tell yourself, are you the kind, do you tell yourself, I'm the kind of person who, uh, I'm never gonna make it through this, I've, I've, I've quit at this, I quit at that, I quit. or, you know, I'm not a quitter. That's the story I tell myself. People want to seek out things that support their story. They want to fulfill their story. We all know someone who, who has this vision of their self in a certain way. And you present them with that challenge of, oh, you know, oh, you, you think you're so smart? Well, could you do that? And people often jump to the challenge. Why? Because they want to support their story. And we have this evolving story of ourselves. And it's, it's really critical, you know, for, for us to feel that, you know, we are part of this. Because we've all had how many moments in our lives, how many ups, how many downs, we don't remember all of them. Mm. We don't recall all of them and we don't make all of them part of our story. There's a thousand different ways to frame the decades that have gone by. We can shape them many ways. And how we do actually has a huge effect on whether we persist, how happy we are, and the decisions we make going forward. 
You guys know I have a very strict diet that I stick to, except for very special occasions. And I do that so that I can bring my best every day to what I'm doing. And a big part of that strict diet is high quality animal protein and my go-to source of trustworthy meats and seafoods with no added hormones or antibiotics ever is ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a premium meat subscription service that delivers 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood all directly to your door. I cannot recommend ButcherBox enough. When you eat ButcherBox, you are giving your body the best possible building blocks to work with so you can reach your full potential. You've got to take care of yourself at a cellular level if you want to hit your peak consistently. So ButcherBox is the key. Sign up at butcherbox.com impact and get our special deal. ButcherBox is off Offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. And that means you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash impact and use code impact to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You will never be able to reach your full potential if you are riddled with stress and have a lot weighing on your mind. I can tell you from my own experiences with stress and negative thought loops, you have to find a way to work through whatever it is that's weighing on you if you're gonna have any hope of achieving your goals. Therapy can be an option for working through things and for an online therapy option that is super convenient and flexible, be sure to check out BetterHelp. With BetterHelp, everything is 100% online and getting started is quick and easy. A brief questionnaire matches you with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no extra charge. Get things off your chest, process through things with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash impact theory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash impact theory. In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you want to have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need. And Impact Theory's own chief financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. Yeah, when you said that one of the most important things that a therapist does mm-hmm. is spend time fixing people's stories, yeah. 
Man, that is so important to understand. Like, a, how malleable the stories are, and then really where their importance lies. One of the things you talk about in the book, which I loved, I took so many notes on this, was uh, what makes stories so effective is that they abstract, that they are they're not necessarily accurate, that they allow us, you said, to put rose-colored glasses on. Mm-hmm. Talk about that. Uh, this, was, this was something that uh, uh, Tyler Cowen, uh, an uh, economics professor, big blogger and economics professor at George Mason University talked about, which, you know, which we don't think about when we're here to make sense, which is that stories are always narrowed. They're always edited. Mm-hmm. You know, you've been alive for, for decades. You're not considering every second that went by. You're taking little snapshots to tell a story you leave out, even if you're telling a joke. You know, you only tell the parts that are important to that joke. And so stories are always inaccurate because you might say, you know, I consider myself a good person. You ever done anything bad? You ever done anything you're not proud of? Of course you have. You know, but you're, to some degree, selecting those things, and you feel those are more representative of who you are. And somebody who doesn't feel they're such a good person is selecting different. What's the raw total score of good versus bad versus we don't know? So stories are always you know, inaccurate. Unless I'm, we're going to recount every second of your life and take every... We can't. So stories are always a reduced, shortened version, and they usually have a point. They usually result in, I feel I'm a good person. I'm persistent. Yeah, and the the real power in that that I hope people take away is that ultimately it's up to you as the person telling yourself that story to decide what you leave in and what you leave out, which I'm sure is exactly what the therapist is helping them do, is either just reframe the exact same moment or, hey, in your decades of experience, start pulling different moments, those moments that you are proud of instead of focusing on the moments that you're not proud of. That's huge. Um, a lot of this, uh, this research was worked by, uh, worked by Tim Wilson at UVA, and he talks about, again, therapists, story editing, you know, reframing, looking at different events. But there's also something else we can do because some, some people can do that very well if, if somebody has done great things, but they, don't, they, don't, they feel like a loser. Right then reframing can work really well, highlighting different things. Other people might feel like, I haven't accomplished much. And for that, Tim Wilson recommends something I think is wonderful, which is, uh, which is called Do Good, Be Good. Uh, and they've done research to show this works, where rather than people are so, we're always thinking, we're always thinking, we're always thinking, no. You want to feel like a better person? Okay. You know, start volunteering once a week. Mm. Go out and do it. And then what will happen is the story will follow. Because it's going to be really hard if you start saying, hey, every paycheck, I'm going to donate X amount to charity. Every week, I'm going to volunteer to help people. All of a sudden, you're going to find after a few months, it's kind of hard to tell yourself, oh, yeah, I'm a terrible person. Because you're going to tell other people, oh, I'm a little short of money because I donate to right. charity. and I, Well, I can't go Sunday. I, that's when I volunteer. Right. And you're going to start to follow. Your story will follow your behavior. So if you have trouble changing your story... First, change your behavior, and you know Don Quixote. It's like you know you want to you want to be a knight, act like a knight. Right. I love that. Absolutely love that. And uh, you had research in there that talks about like chunking that time up. Yeah. 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 Walk us through that. Well, that that ties in with Adam Grant's research in terms of givers and takers. The 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 givers, you know, the givers were disproportionately represented at the top and at the bottom. Well, who are the ones at the bottom? The ones at the bottom were the ones who did too much. They were always focusing on others. They were martyrs. Right. Um, and so chunking is the idea of, hey, how am I, I going to sustainably be able to help other people if I'm doing pretty well myself? 
you know, I can, if I make more money, I can donate more money. You know, if, so basically the idea of saying, I am going to devote, you know, my Sundays to, that's when I, that's when I do my good deeds. Right. Or, you know, at work, you know, basically saying, okay, Thursday afternoons, you know, that's a time when things are a little slow. It's not crazy like Monday. It's right. not get everything done by Friday. Thursday afternoons, anybody who needs me or anybody who's, hey, can I pick your brain? Can I, that's when I'm, I, that is devoted to that. That is devoted to that. So by saying, chunking, I'm going to do my good deeds here. Number one, it makes sure they happen. Mm. And number two, it makes sure that they don't just keep going. Because once you say to people, hey, I want to help, you might get more requests than you can possibly fulfill. You know, so having a, a budget of time, you know, any resource to assist people in designating it allows it to make sure it, it happens. So you are, you are a giver, but also make sure that it doesn't take over your life. Uh, I love that. And um, talk to me a little bit about knowing when to quit. So the, that was one of the things I really found fascinating in the book. And I think this is so important yeah. is what's the difference between quit and grit? Like, how do you know, like, when to lean where? Yeah, because grit and quit is huge. Like, grit is having its moment in the sun now where everybody's talking about grit. But we, we, we can't, you have to quit some things. You only have 24 hours in a day. Right. If, I, if I'd never quit anything, I'd, I'd still be playing with action figures and I'd still be playing t-ball. Right. You know, you, you quit things, you move on. So the truth is that strategic quitting, quitting the right things, uh, can actually benefit grit because you have more time. So if you want those K. Anders Ericsson 10,000 hours of, of expertise, where there's only 24 hours in a day, right. that's it. So the more stuff you quit that isn't delivering value to your life, the more resources, the more time and energy you have to really become good at something. So quitting becomes critical. But that leads us to the tough question, which is how do you know what to quit, you know, what to stick with? And you know, it's like we have our passions, we have our interests, you know, we have what clearly provides value, but there's some fascinating research came out of NYU that basically had this wonderful little word, whoop. And it was basically a, a, a plan for how people can take their ideas, use, using research, take their ideas from a dream uh, to an actual plan. And what they found basically is we think like, oh, dreaming, dreaming, dreaming about dreaming. The, the thing that's dangerous about dreams is on their own, Dreams are a good first step, but wishing on its own actually saps energy. It doesn't create energy because our brain is not very good at telling fiction from reality. That's why movies are exciting. You know, if we just saw it as, oh, that's, that's pixels on a screen, right. that wouldn't be exciting. But you know, when you, you get thrills because we're not always good at that. So when we dream, our brain starts to think we already have that. Right. And energy levels go down. So interesting. So, so we can start by wishing, but then the next thing that needs to happen is we need to crystallize what, what we want. Why do you think though, so I mean, I have my own answer, but why do you think if wishing, fantasizing, dreaming about yeah. it pacifies you because some part of your brain doesn't realize you don't actually have it, yeah. why do we start there? We start there because we're, we're kind of looking to what do we want? What do we desire? You know, you, you so look So you think around. it is important to paint a picture of what you want, oh. you just can't get lost in it. it. We just, the problem is when you stop there, you know, wishing and dreaming is is critical. You need to think about what you want. You want to have dreams. But the problem is that basically wishing, if wishing by itself is just, it's like, it's, it's the equivalent of like alcohol. Feels good in the moment, but it doesn't necessarily make you more productive. So we need to take the next step. The next step is to think outcome. So W-O-O-P, wish. Second thing is outcome, which is what is the specific thing I want? Oh, I want to be rich and famous. And I, how are, okay, what, what's the final outcome? Right. What is that thing going to be? And then once you have a specific idea, you know, this is what I, this is what I want to be, then the critical part, which is obstacle. What's in the way? 
what is that thing I have to overcome to get what I want? Mm. And most people don't. That's tough. That, that's not as fun as just thinking about Learjets. So, you know, wish, outcome, obstacle. And then once you think about the obstacle, you can make a plan. How can I overcome that? Mm. What's the next step? Now, what's great is that leads people towards what's called implementation intentions, which is basically a plan for how you can get your dreams. But what's also fascinating is in terms of the grit or quit question. So when the research was done, what they found was that how people felt after doing the exercise mm. was very telling. People who felt energized and excited, that was generally an indicator that this was a realistic possibility. That they had a dream, but when they thought about the obstacle, it was surmountable by their plan, great. When people realize that, wait, this plan is not going to get over this obstacle and is not going to get me my dream, right. people didn't feel as energized and it became a litmus test for sort of determining, you know, do I need a new plan? Is this plan not really addressing the issue? Or is this dream completely unrealistic? You know, so it can be useful in terms of grit or quit because if, I, if you feel energized by it, great, go do it. This is something you should be sticking with. If you don't feel it, Okay, fine. Maybe you need to reevaluate your plan, or maybe you need to reevaluate your dream. That is such, that's the first effective strategy for breaking down when, like when people ask me about that, and I say, look, you, you've got to know when to stick with something and when to give up if you're not enjoying it. Mm. But in that, I'm always like, God, I don't really know what I'm telling them to do yeah. because it's like sort of gut instinct. But yeah. that's like an awesome process. Do you have a similar process? Because the other question I get asked all the time yeah. is, how do I find my passion, which I am a fiery believer that you don't yeah. find it, you develop it. But yes. like, how do people, do you have a process for people figuring that out? I think what you said is exactly right. It's the issue of development. And uh, Peter Sims wrote this great book called Little Bets, where it turns out to be a system that's used across the board in many different areas for people to kind of find their passion, find their interests, find things they're good at. And basically it's like treating your time almost like a venture capitalist where little bets are small, you know, little efforts. You're not gonna put in a ton of time, energy, right. or money. You're gonna try a bunch of things, and you're gonna see what works, what you enjoy or what you're good at. And so like a VC firm might say, all right, 10 companies, I know seven are gonna fail, no problem. Mm -hmm. Two are probably gonna break even, and one's gonna be the next Facebook or Google, and that works for me. Right. Well, to say to yourself, I'm gonna try 10 different things. I'm gonna take a yoga class. I'm gonna take a martial arts class. I'm gonna you know, read this book. And seven of them, I'm probably gonna say, uh-uh, no thanks, uh-uh. But two, I might say, there's potential here. And one might be that great new opportunity. Because the world is changing. The world's changing so much that we can't afford to be left behind. So you wanna be trying stuff. If your you know, grit and focus is fantastic, but you don't want to be working on horses and buggies when the car is being developed, you don't want to fall behind. So to always be devoting 5 to 10% of your time to trying something new in a low investment sort of way to give it a shot, that's what's going to help you find the next big thing, find what you're passionate about. If you're not trying, you can't find your passion. I like that a lot. Um, you're very excitable. Yeah. That's <laughs> clear. Has there ever been a time where you were sort of stuck, there was nothing really calling for you, mm -hmm. um, where you have sort of a, I'll put it back in the context of your normal yeah. um, writing the blog, so you're yeah. going through all the research papers and things like that. So you're not necessarily doing small bets and looking for something. Yeah. How do you, within that universe, if your excitement is sort of flagging, do yeah. you have a process to yeah. tap back into something? Basically, for, 
for me, it's about uh, it's about just getting some 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 kindling that curiosity where it's like asking that question because I definitely get times where you know not feeling it, it's not happening, right. and what what I need is something that starts me asking a question because if I even if I read a book and I'm like, there's nothing here. This isn't really going to help me. Sometimes I'll find myself going, well, then what was I looking for? Oh, well, I was looking for this. Okay, well, is there anything on that? Right. And then all of a sudden I'm on Amazon. I'm going, oh, I can't believe that. Nobody's written a book on this subject. There's got to be some reading. I'm a Google Scholar, and I'm like, oh, wait a second. Right. Hey, I know. Once I start that question asking, once I get a question that makes me go, now I, now I need to know because we've we've all felt that to, to some degree where you know all of a sudden you find yourself on Wikipedia and then somehow a half hour went by and I'm clicking around and right. now I know more about the Peloponnesian War than anybody and for me that's what it's it's about is you know if if I'm if I'm not feeling it I have to start to start to say like you know what what am I curious about? What is it? And anything that I can do, so I want to start throwing stuff at myself. I want to start, you know, watching a documentary. I want to start, you know, reading, reading a book, reading an article that makes me start to ask a question. And then sometimes if it's, if it is more general, then I can just go down that rabbit hole. Right. Um, if it's more specific, then I, I literally have to try and like trick myself into how does that relate to what I'm, well, I'm curious about this. I'm kind of, can I redirect that passion? Because, because I know once I get going, I'm like a terrier with a frisbee. Like I'm, I'm just not going to let go. But I have to. I have to get that curiosity engine kind of, kind of going. Where there's like, okay, I need the answer to this question. Now you've had some articles that have really popped. Mm -hmm. What, what do they have in common? The ones that have just really knocked it out of the park. Are there any um, threads? I, I mean, across the board, I think it's f first off. You know, it's it's things that 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 interest most people because, you know, so issues of happiness, uh, connecting with others, things that are universal. Um, but second, I think it's having really legitimate science, you know, where people are like, okay, I'm comfortable with this. Mm. And then I think beyond that is, you know, having a level of warmth and accessibility because the, the truth is, so much of what I post there, you know, it's, it's, I mean, sometimes the books, okay, the book you might have to find and buy. Right. But most of these research studies, you can just Google. You don't have to listen to me. Right. You can just Google, but it's not fun. They're not interesting. They're, they use big words. They're not like, they're not, there's just, it's, there's so many just layers of, of, of just, it's not, it's not, you know, it's not this kind of fun journey. Mm -hmm. And so it's like highlighting the stuff that's counterintuitive, asking, you know, the questions that I might ask as a reader, which people can probably relate to, you know, making it accessible, making it a little fun, throwing in a little humor, you know, that's just kind of like, you know, having a little sugar to make the medicine go down where, you know, where it's just like you're, you're kind of feeling it, you're enjoying it. And I think that makes all the difference in the world, making it accessible. And so I think finding that balance of something which is, is useful, mm -hmm. something which is accessible, you know, and something which is legit. You know, if you can combine those three, I think that that's a really great starting point for something that's, that's really going to garner a lot of attention. Why do you think happiness is so universal? Why do you think people struggle with it so much? It's, it's, really, it's really tricky because I think that there, we have so many competing interests you know, in our lives. I think a big part of it you know, is, is that issue of, you know, my, my book's about success, you know, but I talk a fair amount about happiness because we often just conflate the two. 
And, and that doesn't really work. You know, just because somebody has, has a lot of money doesn't mean they're happy. And, and just because somebody's happy doesn't mean they have a lot of money. You know, but obviously, you know, we, we often get this feeling like if we get power, then that will relate to happiness. Mm. And, and that's not necessarily the case. And if you look at the research by uh, Sonia Lubomirsky showed that, that happiness leads to success more often than success leads to, to happiness. You know, and that vision of, you know, of uh, uh, power, you know, power is obviously very influential and, and helps us, uh, especially thousands of years ago, helped us live longer lives. Right. Um, but power is very different from like ability, you know, from connecting with others. You know, in fact, you know, there's this balance where the more powerful we feel, often we tend to dehumanize others. Empathy levels decrease. Now, you know, power affords great, you know, great things in life, you know, a level of safety, comfort. Um, you know, but, you know, likability is the thing that is most correlated with, with happiness, with connecting with others. And when you look at longitudinal studies that follow people their entire lives, like the Grant study and the Terman study, you know, it turns out across the board that, you know, relationships, you know, are what brings us the most happiness, brings us the most lives. And, you know, power is not connected with great, it's connected with having relationships because people want stuff from you but not with great relationships. So I think we often conflate the two that, you know, very often we, we especially when it comes to the issue of work-life balance, we use what's called a collapsing metric, where it's just simpler if we can just track one thing. And if I can just track that one thing and I can make that number go up, everything will be good in life. And you know what? Money's a pretty easy number. So people often think, well, if I just make that number go up, everything will work out. Right. And whereas in many cases, it actually turns out to be the, re the reverse in the sense that, Chasing money means devoting your time to work. Devoting your time to work usually means taking your time away from relationships, and relationships are the things that are most connected with meaning in life and happiness. So it needs to be a, to be a balance. You, in one of your blog articles, I found this hilarious. I don't read Dilbert, but I'm almost <laughs> certain it was a Dilbert comic. Mm -hmm. um, and the person said, oh, what should I do to be successful? And the woman goes, uh, like, work every hour of the day, like, give everything up, you know, whatever. And uh, the guy goes, well, that's not going to make me very happy. She goes, you didn't ask me about happiness. <laughs> and I thought, wow, that's actually really true. Yeah. So what are the, so relationship is the key cornerstone. What are, you have the four things that, like, people should really think about in their life. Happiness is at the top. Yeah. But what are the other three? Uh, this was work by Nash and Stevenson uh, at, at, at Harvard, and they did, uh, they basically looked at, you know, the issue of kind of like work-life balance and what people led fulfilling lives. And what they found was that, again, that issue of a collapsing metric, just having one number didn't work mm. because if you're all focused on money, you forget about relationships, you're all focused on relationships, maybe you can't pay the rent. So, you know, you, you, there is a balance here. So the collapsing metric. The other mistake that people frequently make is, is they try a sequencing strategy, which is, okay, first I'm going to start out and I'm going to do this job that I hate but I'm gonna make lots of money. And then, you know, I'm gonna focus on it, and then that's not gonna work out, but then I'm finally gonna, and it's just life's not that even because, you know, obviously it's relationships. You, you can't just start them when you're in phase three. It needs regular, consistent behavior. So what they found was that there were actually four buckets that people needed to be regularly putting deposits in. The first was happiness, which is basically, are you enjoying what you're doing? The second was achievement. You know, do you have goals or you're getting closer to them? The third was significance, with, is what you're doing having an impact on the people you love and who love you? And then fourth was legacy, which is to some degree or another, are you making a positive impact on the world? And when you think about it, the balance of those four really makes sense because 
you want to enjoy life. And you do need to pay the rent, achieve goals, move forward. And if we feel like what you're doing isn't benefiting the people you love at all, or is you know, maybe, maybe even a negative, you know, that's not going to lead to a meaningful life. And then fourth, you don't want to just be selfish and clannish. You, know, you want to think, like, I'm doing something to, to really put something out there. And when you take, if you look at your schedule for the week, for the month, and you say, I'm making small deposits in each one of those four, that's when you start to be on your way towards, towards a level of work-life balance and towards a, wor- a level of, of, of feeling meaningful, you're having a meaningful life. It's mm. awesome. I love that. Uh, before I ask my last question, actually, mm-hmm. where can these guys find you online? Uh, my, my URL is a little hard to spell. Yes, that so I will if, attest th- to. Yes, so if uh, people Google uh, Barking Up the Wrong Tree blog, or if they Google Eric Barker, right. uh, they, can, they, can find, uh, they can find the blog and uh, the books, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, on Amazon or other booksellers, or, or you know, look up my name, Eric Barker. On there. And, and I'll save you guys a little bit of time. The Eric Barker who died in the 90s, this is not my <laughs> Eric Barker. So, yeah. um, Awesome. So my last question, yeah. what is the impact that you want to have on the world? I want to help people make better choices that help them lead better lives. Because like that William Gibson quote, you know, a lot of these answers are out there. There's a distinction uh, that's made between puzzles and mysteries. Puzzles are things that have an answer, mm. you know, so, you know, uh, you know, how, 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 how many dollars do I have in my pocket? There's an answer to that. We might not know it right now, but there's an answer to that. And there's mysteries. There's, you know, what is the meaning of life? There is no clear, immediate answer to that. I think a lot of the things that we think are mysteries are actually puzzles. You know, what do we have to do to be more productive? What do we have to do to live happy lives? What do we do have to do to, live good, to have good relationships? Uh, we think often, oh my God, it's this big mystery. No, I think sometimes they're puzzles. Sometimes there are answers. Sometimes there are things we can do, if not to get the perfect solution, to at least get better. Mm-hmm. And I am obsessive about you know, doing this blog, you know, writing my book, and trying to find these answers so that I can live a better life. And I, 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 I would feel guilty if I wasn't sharing that, just putting it out there that people can appreciate it and, and enjoy it, and hopefully use those things to make better decisions that help them live better lives, because the, the answers are very often there. You know, we just, we just need to connect the answers with the people. That's awesome. Eric, thank you so Thanks, much buddy. for coming on. Appreciate it. Guys, it is very rare that somebody's answer of how they want to impact the world is so in alignment with what they're actually doing on a day-to-day basis. Dive into his work, check out his website. The sheer volume of information is astonishing and every one of the articles is well worth the time. It is a rabbit hole so deep and compelling, you will go down and not come up for hours because one thing will lead to the next and he's very good about at the end of the article, he tells you, ah, there's another one that you might like to read. And you will just keep going and going and going. It is utterly fascinating because he really is going that layer deeper. He's digging into the platitude and asking what part of this is so true that it's, it's become a platitude and it's carried on for so long and what part of it's false that actually deserves a deeper look so that we can really find out and take this from being a mystery to being a puzzle that is ultimately solvable. Dive in. You will not regret it. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care.
Hey everybody, thanks so much for joining us for another episode of Impact Theory. If this content is adding value to your life, our one ask is that you go to iTunes and Stitcher and rate and review. Not only does that help us build this community, which at the end of the day is all we care about, but it also helps us get even more amazing guests on here to share their knowledge with all of us. Thank you guys so much for being a part of this community. And until next time, be legendary, my friends. Thank you.